the words that we've sung are important. They are full of meaning and to the souls of your people. And I pray, O oh God, that we might feed off them as we sing them, as we offer them to you, as we turn to heaven and, and say these wonderful things that are so profoundly true arising out of your word. Like the promises that we get in your word and the promises that we sing about in our hymnology. Might it be that that gives you pleasure and, and tenderizes our heart towards things eternal? Our Father, um, we are a people who bring in a mixed bag of need every Sunday morning. For some, it's changed since last Sunday. And I pray that what we sing here and what we do here and what we give here and what we pray here and what we preach here will be for your people words of life. Because, Father, we're not going to find them in the Wall Street Journal. We're not going to find them in Forbes magazine. We're not going to find them in the commercial appeal. We're going to find words of life coming directly from your word having been written and inspired by the Holy Spirit himself. And I pray, Father, that we might all walk out of here this morning with a word of life on our, on our hearts and tongues. I pray for the brother and the sister who is here who is struggling with awful difficulty. And I pray that the gathering of your people might encourage them individually. I pray for the families that have lost loved ones this week, and there have been a few. And I pray, O oh God, that you will bring uh, a cherished comfort to their souls. Father, we do pray for our nation. She is a nation that uh, is about to change leadership and elect new leadership. And I pray that you will direct this land to the man of your choosing, whomever that might be. And that you'll give us a great conscience about preparing, preparing for that vote, but an even bigger conscience as we prepare to select five elders from the 14 nominees in December. Our Father, um, as the nation goes, as the church goes, so goes the nation. And so we're picking leaders that will influence the course of this church. And we pray that you will stir us to a new heightened awareness of our responsibilities in that regard. Now, Father, accept our gifts. They are small, but they are, they are the overflow of hearts who love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. As we continue our look at this neglected book, follow now as I read our text, which comes from chapter 2. Verse 11 through verse 19. Follow as I read. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. 
and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. As the Lord had said and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and he delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. It came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following their gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, oh, my brother and sister in Christ, aren't we grateful that it endures forever? Uh, this morning, I, I, I want to issue a warning, I guess is what it is, when, as I begin. This, this may be somewhat complex. And I'm going to do my uh, dead-level best to make it not confusing and not complex. But there is, um, there is complexity here. Um, but when this complexity is rightly understood, it is uh, music to our ears. I want you to see it. I hope I am uh, um, capable of giving voice to this glorious, gracious complexity. Throughout our study, we've been in this uh, book, oh, I don't know, six, eight weeks. But um, we've arrived at one and a half chapters behind us. But in those first one and a half chapters, you could almost sense that this was coming, this next paragraph that we just read. It was almost as if those first one and a half chapters were setting us up, preparing us to hear verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. We were almost ready for that as we saw this group of people sink further and, or, and lower and lower and lower. The, the, the text this morning not only does that, but it also gives us um, a brief condensation of about 200 years of, of Jewish history. Now think back with me, guys. Um, if you were here in the introductory sermon of this book, I, I tried to give you some, uh, some characteristics of the book, um, certain things to look for as we studied the book together. And one of the things that I mentioned was the cycle. You remember the, the, the cycle that began with Israel's sin and then her being delivered over to oppressors and then her crying out to God? And then God sending a judge to deliver. That was the cycle. And here it is, ladies and gentlemen. 
And it's not so much that this text is giving us one of those cycles as it is giving us a generalized statement about how the cycle wins. What you're getting here is a summary of what's going to take place in Israel for the next 200 years. This cycle that begins with the sin of Israel and God delivering her over to plunderers, her crying out for mercy, and him hearing and delivering. Our text is giving us heads up for what's going to happen in the following chapters. Because from here on, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to see this cycle. Uh, it's going to begin, well, actually, not next week, but the next. Because one of the judges is named Othniel. And we'll get to him in a couple of weeks. But that's what you have in this text. A summary of this cycle of the, that would recur in Israel's history for the next 200 years. So we're going to have plenty of opportunity to look at that cycle. What I want us to focus on this morning is not so much the cycle, but the God who is at the center of that cycle that recurs some eight or nine times, we're going to discover in this book. I, I, but I want us, as I said, we're going, to, we're going to have numerous illustrations of this generalized principle that you get here. And we'll look at it, you know, in, in all of its detail. So much so that you'll probably get tired of hearing it. Because that's what you're going to get in all of these judges. But this morning, as we begin this introduction to the cycle, I want us to fix our attention not on the cycle itself, but on the God who's at the center of that cycle. And I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, we are about to, um, to take a look at some of God's most reverent and revered ways. And that's where the complexity is going to come in, ladies and gentlemen. I'll say this. Here's a principle that you can remember. Anytime divinity, the divine, comes in contact with the human, you're going to get mystery. For instance, the the person of the Trinity who causes the most amount of confusion in the evangelical world today is, of course, the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. Because any time the divine comes in contact with the human, it is going to spin off certain mystery. And we're going to get a glimpse of the ways of God and thus a portion of the mystery. And that's why it's confusing, because there's a mystery here, ladies and gentlemen, and I hope you'll see it well when we leave this text. I want you to notice the first thing that, um, about this God of the cycle, that we are told here that everything that goes on, we are told this in verse 15, we are told that everything that goes on, let me, look at, let me read it to you again, wherever they went, um, skip to the uh, last half, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them. Let me read you um, from num uh, Leviticus chapter 26. Let me just read you one verse, uh, 26, 17, uh, where he, God says, this is way back in Leviticus, he says, I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by all your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. This is something that God had promised in numerous passages. I only read one. But this is something that God had promised to do if this ever happened. 
What you see him doing here in this um, uh, nine verses is you see God carrying out his promises. That's all. He is simply being faithful to his word, and all that we watch him do here is a faithful keeping of his promises. Um, this is not so much to be seen as, as the wrath of God thundering against the people of God. This is simply something that he warned about, he swore he would do, and when his people violated his covenant, that's exactly what he did. He is simply being consistent with all he had sworn and promised to do. Ladies and gentlemen, God keeps all of his promises. All of them. There's never one that's been broken. And you can expect that about our God. He keeps his promises. Not one of them go unkept. Now, ours do, but not his. One of the, uh, the, the commentaries that I read, one of the guys said that what you see happening here, this chastisement on the part of the people of God, is the price we pay for being loved. Can I, can I clarify what I think that guy said? Because um, I think it's a marvelous statement. This is the price that the people of God will pay for simply being loved. You know, when I do uh, premarital counseling, that is, you bring this little couple in and prepare them <laughs> in an hour and a half for 45 years of marriage, um, it's, it's a tad inadequate, as you might guess, but I always like to start off with this question. I always ask them, do you see jealousy as ever being something that is legitimate in marriage? And they kind of fumble around a little while, and you know, I, and, and I try to trick them a little bit, you know. And and um, but uh, I usually say this before the the discussion is over: You show me a man who can find his wife in the arms of another man and not get jealous, and I will show you a man that does not love his wife. What do you think the legitimate reaction should be if a husband were to find his wife having an affair? Um, all rats. You know, uh, that's a real bummer, but that's the way the old cookie crumbles, I guess. You know, you just win some and you lose some. What do you think about that husband, ladies and gentlemen? Do you think he loved her? Poppycock. Because, ladies and gentlemen, in every relationship that is designed to be exclusive, all of them, there's only two of them, by the way, my relationship to my wife and my relationship to my God, in every relationship that is designed to be exclusive, jealousy is not only allowed, it is required. Gang, we readily acknowledge that principle in marriage. So what I'm saying is what you're seeing in particularly verses 11 through 15, is God being what he has always told us that he is? Jealous. Jealousy over his bride. Jealousy is always the flip side of love, ladies and gentlemen. This commentary went on to say that jealousy is love burst into its proper flame. Guys, um, what you see here is the price that we pay for being loved. My dear bride of Christ, what did you think he would do if we forsook him? What did you think our heavenly 
faithful bridegroom would do if his bride forsook him. Gang, um, you forsake him, and he pursues you. In his anger, which is the very essence of chastisement, so we can all expect this God to do two things. In jealousy to pursue his wayward children, you can always expect him to be consistent with who he is and his promises given to us. This chastisement that you see going on here is just the price we pay for being in a covenant relationship with the living God. Let me show you the second thing in this text um, that I think you can see and learn about this God who is at the center of the cycle. I want you to notice, you know, my eyes are getting worse and worse. I really don't need these. I need those little big magnifying glasses, but I'm too proud to bring those in here. Uh, but maybe next week I'll get over it. But uh, um, I want you to notice in the text, at verse 14, And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, God was against them for calamity. Guys, um, I want you to notice that it is God who delivered his people over to the plunderers. He did it. He is, he is perfectly involved in everything that is going, not only involved, he's the originator. We, say, we, we read here that the uh, children of Israel served the Baals. By the way, the reason that that's in plural is because his name varied from region to region. Same God. But we see this people buying into Baal. And what it seems that they have done is choose gods that are more directly concerned with their own prosperity. Did you get that? They choose gods that are more directly concerned about their own prosperity. Let me, let me tell you what I mean. Baal, remember, is the god of the storm, the god of the rain. So thus, the god of the crops, the god of the harvest. And then you have Asherah thrown in there, who is the god of fertility, the god of the temple prostitute, the god of one's fertile sex life. And so, they chose a god who was more directly involved in their own comforts. What we've been told here is that Israel was worshiping other gods. And may I hasten to add, that is what the Western culture, including Germantown, is also doing, worshiping other gods. We, we've committed ourselves to gods who we think will make life easier and more enjoyable. If you want a summary of the gods that we've committed ourselves to, the Richard Foster has written a whole book about it. Money, sex, and power. Very consistent with Baal and Asherah. And I want you to notice, you must see that when we do something like that, God directly turns us over 
into the hands of plunderers. And I want you to notice, in fact, what I consider to be almost the worst word in the whole text. It's in verse 17. They turned quickly. Right after the judge leaves the scene, man, they turn quickly. You do know, of course, I, I think, that Israel is an Old Testament picture of a New Testament people, a New Testament people called the church. And um, none of us will deny that the professing churches of mainline stripe all across our country have been for the last 25 years in a precipitous spiritual decline. We are watching churches who have histories of being faithful to God's word. We're watching as the church, the bride of Christ, begins to give sanction to the grossest of sins. So you do know that when the people stop believing in God, they don't start believing in nothing. That's not their option. Nothing is not their option. They don't leave God and go into nothingness. They go to some other God. It's other gods. We replace this God with a God who we think uh, will be easier to live with. Something that would benefit us in the area of money, sex, and power. Let me let me draw one other thing to your attention in verses 17 and then 18 and 19 really the we can never afford to underestimate the the alluring power that sin has uh, verse 17 um, 18 and when the Lord raised up judges for them the Lord was the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of the, those who oppressed and harassed them and it came to pass when the judge was dead they reverted they more corruptly you see the, the allure this, the, the voice of conscience being dulled by successive generations committed to sin and Israel at this point ladies and gentlemen is, is sin's captive you know, folks, um, our truest nature can be seen when all of the restraints are off. You who teach school, you imagine for a moment a, a classroom full of second graders, and you walk down to the walk out of the, your classroom, go down to the office, and get some chalk, <laughs> and you come back, you know, 15 minutes later, and there's mayhem going on in that room. Well, when the, when the judges are removed, when the restraints are off, they're gone, then sin has this powerful allure. Don't ever underestimate it, ladies and gentlemen. And when God's people choose other gods, when they, when they succumb to this power of sin, then you need to know this. Our faithful covenant-keeping God will become your opponent. There's a third thing that I want you to see um, about the God of the cycle. L let me do this. I hope your texts are still open. I want to read verses 14a and I want to combine it with verse 16. 
I want you to notice the sequence. Verse 14a says, And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Now, gang, if I understand this sequence correctly, I am being forced to this conclusion. The conclusion is this, that the God who delivered them into the hands of the plunderers, in verse 14, the God who delivered them into the hands of plunderers is also the God who, in verse 16, is depicted as being the very same God who delivers them out of the hands of the plunderers. This God delivers them into and then removes them from. The same God whose hand is set against them is at one and the same time for them. Gang, this word, nevertheless, it's a conjunction. And, and uh, I think it was Lloyd-Jones who used to say, there's a lot of theology in conjunctions. But that one word, nevertheless, that begins verse 16, is a word that is packed full of meaning. Because, ladies and gentlemen, once that nevertheless is introduced, with that one word, the whole story, including the 200 years that it's summarizing, the whole story takes on a whole new direction. What you and I, um, when we read those verses 11 through 15, and then we join to that, verse 16, there is a bit of confusion that may occur. Because had we written this text, we wouldn't have written it like this. We would have written something like this. Well, they served the other gods, and God punished them for the rest of their days, and they had it coming. Or we would write something like this. And God punished them, but in the midst of the punishment, there was great repentance and revival that took place in the land, and as a result, God um, balanced the books. Because you and I think in terms of merit, we think in terms of desert, that is deserving. We think in terms of justice. But then you get this word that thunders into this text, nevertheless. The God who opposes is the God who woos and draws. Very same God. The God who has promised to do certain things keeps his promises. And he promised that he was a God of long-suffering and slow to anger. And you see this God who has extended his hand in chastisement against these people is now extending his hand to deliver them. Oh, my brother and sister in Christ, drink it in. Nevertheless, introduces you and, uh, and me to a God of grace. God of grace and mercy. The heart of God we see in this text. Um, verse 18, I believe. I can't see the numbers, but 
Then the Lord was moved to pity by the groaning because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And by the way, that word groaning doesn't include any notion of repentance. They're just overtaken with grief. And we see here this God being depicted as one who is crushed over the very miseries that he himself rightfully inflicted on these people. Dare we say that? The text does. So moved is this God that he sends a deliverer. Gang, you're a bit confused? Me too. But in this paragraph, what you're getting a glimpse of is the glory of the gospel. That our God is eager to accept sinful, wayward people based on something that he is and does completely apart from any merit that you might think you would have brought to the equation. Guys, who could invent a God like that? A God who inflicts punishment and at the same time devises a way that those wayward people might find deliverance and forgiveness. Who would invent something like this? I'll tell you this, ladies and gentlemen. When you drag yourself into the New Testament and meet his high priest, you're going to find out that he is that high priest is just like this father. He deals with people and delivers people who have not one smidgen of merit to be delivered. That's the God, ladies and gentlemen, who is the God of the cycle. Drink it in, my brothers and sisters. Because of who he is, you and I can count on deliverance and forgiveness. You know what, guys? I think there's only one proper response to all that. Paul wrote it in Romans 12. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, Present yourselves as living sacrifices, which is your reasonable service of worship. He says, I beseech you, based on what you have seen about the mercies and grace of God, to present yourself. That, I think, is the proper application of our text before us this morning. Let's quit. Our Father, we are stunned at a God who would operate like this.
a stunned, overcome by a long-suffering God who inflicts miseries upon his own son so that he could find a way to deliver those who had sinned. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that um, you might allow all of us to understand that there's not a smidgen of merit in this combined room, that none of us bring a sense of merit whatsoever. We are here to worship a God to whom belongs salvation. Our salvation, O God, is of the Lord, nothing else. And we worship and celebrate who you are this very morning. We ask it, of course, all of this, we pray it, we worship you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.